This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. When most of us think about the great Reformed theologians, we probably think of Calvin, maybe we think of John Owen or Charles Hodge. If we think a little harder, we might think of Zacharias or Sinus, who gave us the Heidelberg Catechism, or William Perkins, the father of English Reformed theology, piety, and practice. There is, however, an unexplored world, or underexplored world, of Reformed theology in the 16th century, the Italian Reformed theologians. You might be familiar with Francis Turretin. His family name was Turretini, and they emigrated from Italy to Geneva. There was also another great Italian Reformed theologian in Zurich, Peter, or Pietro, Martyr, Vermili, and there was one other great Italian Reformed theologian, Hirolamo, or Jerome Zanchi. He lived from 1516 to 1590. Zanke was an important Reformed theologian in a couple of settings in the 16th century, including Heidelberg and Strasbourg. But he's been neglected a little bit because not very much of his work is translated into English. We know him in English mainly for a translation of his Defense of Predestination, which was put into print during the Whitfield-Wesley controversy over predestination. He was at the center of other controversies, but was known for his gentle spirit. We're thinking about Zanke this month on Office Hours because Patrick O'Banion, who graduated from Westminster Seminary, California in 2002 with an M.A. in Historical Theology, is about to publish in November of this year, a couple of months from now, a new translation of Zanke's book from 1591, The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church and Every One of the Faithful. That title again, The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church and Every One of the Faithful. Patrick is a graduate of the University of California, San Diego, Northwestern University, Westminster Seminary, California, and St. Louis University, where he earned his Ph.D. in early modern history. He was professor of history at Lindenwood University in St. Charles, Missouri, for 10 years from 2009 to 2019. He is a prolific writer and has also published three books on early modern Spain, and he's published numerous articles in academic journals. He was ordained as a ruling elder in the PCA in 2008, and he's now licensed to preach by the Siouxlands Presbytery PCA. Since 2019, Patrick has been working with Training Leaders International to provide theological education for pastors and church leaders in regions where access to seminaries is limited or does not exist. He lives in the Twin Cities with his wife and two children. Hiralamo Zanke, The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church, will be available in November 2021 from Reformation Heritage Books. Hi, Patrick, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. Well, it is wonderful to talk to you. It's been a little while, to my shame. I'm sorry to say that uh, I've been neglecting you. Uh, well, they say the phone works both ways. <laughs> is that true? Is that how that happens? That's what I hear. Well, anyway, it's good to talk to you, and it was wonderful to read this book. And just uh, working through it and working through the introduction, which you also did, which I may say is very well written and very engaging, it raised a number of questions, and so we have a lot to discuss here in the in the little time that we have. Just think of this, though, before we dive in. When you graduated from Westminster Seminary, California, podcasting did not exist. Oh, I know. It was a different world in so many different ways. It is almost 20 years since you graduated. I can remember, Scott, you canceling class 
for 9-11. Oh, my. Yes, that was uh, probably a medieval reformation. Probably. It almost certainly had to be in 2001. Oh, yeah. Those were strange days and sad mm-hmm. days, obviously. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, as I say, it's great to talk to you again. And uh, now a couple of old guys still thinking about uh, Reformed theology and uh, the development of Reformed theology. As I say, you not only translated this work, we're talking to Patrick O'Banion about the new translation of a book by Hirolamo or Jerome or Hieronymus, if you want to use his Latin name, Zanke or Zanchius, and the title of this work is The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church. And as we're talking, it's not yet in print. It's on the way. It'll be available in November of 2021. If you're listening to this after the 1st of November 2021, then you should contact Reformation Heritage Books and and get your copy of this uh, wonderful work. You did the translation, and then you wrote the introduction. So tell us a little bit about Hirolamo Zanke. Well, what would you like to know about him? Well, where's he from? And well, and how did he become this major 16th century Italian Reformed theologian, such that Patrick O'Banion would uh, spend the time to translate this work on spiritual marriage? Yeah, well, um, you know, his name gives it away, right? Zanke or Zanke. He's Italian, actually born in the north of Italy in 1516, as you said, in the town of Alzano. You know, Zanke's life is, I think, fascinating. And I've been kind of slowly over the many years trying to piece it all together. It doesn't really, I think, exist in any one place, you know, but I think by pulling a lot of the different threads together, we can get a pretty coherent vision of what his life was like. Turns out that uh, his parents died when he was pretty young. Uh, I think his father died first, maybe he was 11 or 12. And then a few years later, a couple years later, his mother died as well. And, you know, when uh, he was left an orphan, his family, it seems, kind of got together and said, you know, what are we going to do with this kid? And uh, they said, well, he, you know, he likes studying. So let's send him basically to a religious community that has a great library. And that's what they did. He had several family members who were connected to or were members of a religious order known as the Augustinian Canons Regular of the Lateran Congregation. And that's the mouthful. But it's important to distinguish that actually from Luther's religious order, the Order of St. Augustine. This is a different animal, a different beast that Luther became a part of. And that was in a nearby town. It's about six miles away from uh, Maltzano called Bergamo. And, you know, there he lived and uh, he grew up, you know, probably getting into as much trouble as any nerdy teenager is likely to get into. And he found that he really loved learning. He he seems to have enjoyed the community that he had there. This was, I think, in many ways, a good experience for him. And as he grew, he became you know, first a, a novitiate within the order and then eventually a full member, a canon of the order. And so as he was you know, maturing, they sent him off to study to university, probably to the University of Padua, but nobody is quite sure that seems likely. So Padua in 1536 or so, and he learned yeah, lots of Aristotle, lots of languages, some scholastic theology, and then he returned back to Bergamo and became a priest. He became what they called a public preacher. Public preacher is sort of within the order, the same you know level of significance of achieving a doctorate. So he was now someone with you know some weightiness to him, some authority behind him, and it was really at this point that uh, his life changed pretty dramatically because the canons were trying to 
gather a sort of renewed community in the city of Lucca at the Church of San Frediano. And also one of his good friends, a guy named Celso, Celso Martinengo, were reassigned to go to San Frediano. And when they got there, they found out that there was a new prior at San Frediano, a guy who you mentioned just a few minutes ago with the last name Vermilli. So Peter Martyr, Vermilli was there. Peter Martyr would, of course, you know, become one of the great trailblazing theologians of the Reformed tradition. But at this point, he was still operating within the context of the Roman church. His evangelical sympathies were well known. He'd already gotten into trouble a couple of times, but um, he was still operating there. He was doing some really sort of remarkable work. He was creating a kind of a a seminary, a a Reformed, a Protestant seminary in pre-Tridentine Italy. Really the you know, certainly the last one, uh, maybe the only one that uh, would exist. And, you know, he's there, he's learning from Vermilli, he's uh, hearing Vermilli lecture on Romans and on the Psalms, and, yeah, I mean, he has this uh, this whole sort of spiritual awakening. He gets the gospel, really, I think, for the first time. He understands justification by faith alone, and he starts reading, you know, the Reformers. He's reading Melanchthon and Bullinger and Bootser and Calvin, of course, and other guys, too. And then the wheels come off. 1542, Vermilli becomes too well-known, and he has to hightail it, flee to the north. His protector, Cardinal Contarini, died. So as as long as Contarini was alive and giving him cover, Contarini was pretty well aware of what was going on in Lucca. Oh, sure. And he wasn't offended by it. He may or may not have sympathized with it. There's debate about that. But he was willing to tolerate it, and maybe he thought it was kind of a good thing. But uh, when he died, they lost their protector, and and everybody had to blow town, right? Yeah, well, most of the guys did, but it's interesting that Zanke and Chelso actually stuck around. I think there are lots of questions about this period of Zanke's life. To what extent did he conform, right? To what extent did he become what Calvin would call a Nicodemite? He certainly is continuing to do the Mass, and uh, he acknowledges that Chelsea was always more bold than he was. But, you know, in any case, this is the decision that he makes, and they stay there for quite a while. They stay in Italy. Zanke's still there at San Frediano for about nine more years, it's only in 51 that you know he too becomes too well known with the inquisition on his heels he takes off for more well for more protestant territories so he, he goes up he finds his way to geneva this is actually where chelso has landed he's pastoring the italian reformed church of geneva and Zanke visits him for a while. Yeah, then he thinks, well, maybe what I'll do is I'll go over to uh, to England because that's where, at this point, Vermilly has landed. He's a professor up at Oxford doing some work there. And Zanke thinks that maybe he'll hit up his old friend for a job or something. And so he starts making his way north. But as he does, he gets sort of, um, you know, he gets tagged for another job. Strasbourg, uh, the College of St. Thomas in Strasbourg, he is offered a position there teaching Old Testament. And so he goes there in 1553. And in some ways, this becomes, you know, both a, a wonderful opportunity, but also the beginning of a whole new set of headaches for Zanke. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Maybe the best sandwich I ever had was a sandwich literally out of a hole in the wall in Strasbourg. It, Is that it, right? Yeah, there was a sign on the menu that said, Sandwich American au jambon. And I thought, <laughs> well, all right, that seems like something I could eat. And uh, I hope you went for jambon. <laughs> well, he... 
he deep fried it and uh, deep fried, you know, he, so it's all breaded and deep fried. And then there are the fries and it all went together. And it was amazing. You know how it is when you're traveling, you're always hungry. So there's oh, that. Yeah. And we were outdoors. And I think that has an effect. Well, it just, you know, finding those little places that become long-term memories, that's a pretty special part of the whole experience as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if I could ever reproduce it. I've sometimes wondered if I ever went back to Strasbourg, <laughs> uh, if, if that little hole in the wall was still there. Do you dare test the memory or, <laughs> or, or do you just leave it alone? But anyway, Strasbourg's a beautiful place, but it was not an easy place for Zanke. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Patrick O'Banion about his new translation of Hiralamo Zanke's book, The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church, which will be available in November 2021 from Reformation Heritage Books. So he had a difficult time in Strasbourg, and uh, why was that so? What happened? Yeah, I mean, it was prophesied or foretold on the very first night that he got there, actually the second night. So the second night that he got here, he had a uh, very difficult time. It was really a terrible academic experience for him. He showed up in Strasbourg and uh, the next day he was invited to have dinner with all of his colleagues, you know, perfectly lovely sort of thing to do at the school. So he got there and he was introduced to a man named Johann Marbach. And Marbach was actually not just the chief preacher in town, but actually his academic superior because he was the professor of theology. So they got to talking. And, you know, I mean, Zanke is Italian, so the subject of the Pope comes up, of course, and Marbach opines to him. He says, well, you know, of course, we can't pray for the Pope because we know that he's committed the unforgivable sin. And Zanke says, well, we don't know that for sure. Certainly, it's possible that he could convert, however unlikely. And uh, Marbach says to him, no, no, this is the man of sin. We cannot pray for him. And Zanke disagrees. And, and this you know, sort of first encounter suggests something of what their relationship would be like for the next eight or nine years that he's there in Strasbourg. And eventually, I mean, the whole thing just really comes apart. Marbach, who really is a Lutheran, even more than that, what they call a Genesio Lutheran, right? A real Lutheran. That is, those who believed in the ubiquity of the human nature of Christ, who believed in the real presence of Christ in the supper. Marbach was drawn towards them, and he was working to make Strasbourg a Lutheran stronghold. As a result of that, Zanke, who was not drawn in that direction, but was much more sort of you know, Calvinistic or Vermilion or even Butzerian in his understanding of the supper at this point, he wasn't moving in that direction. And so increasingly, the divide grew. And um, I, you know, I don't know what it is. I think 1561, Marbach actually officially brings Zanke up on charges. You know, he questions his salvation. He questions his integrity. I mean, he questions his orthodoxy. He calls him a heretic. And so Zanke has to spend the next two years of his life defending himself. And what's sort of sad about this is that he wins, right? He wins the trial. He comes out clean, but he loses the sort of debate for public opinion there in Strasbourg. And so he winds up giving up his job and moving off and accepting a job as a pastor in Chiavena. Chiavena is sort of that weird zone between like, um, Switzerland and Italy and the Holy Roman Empire. It's this sort of no man's land with uh, lots of tall mountains in it. So he winds up going there instead. He's often called a scholastic. 
And that's certainly true that he was. But it's interesting that you note that he was a pastor. And this is a guy who wrote with a pastor's heart, if we can say that, a guy who wrote with an awareness of the needs of the people and uh, of pastors and elders. So he wasn't merely focused on academic questions, but he was focused on questions of real spiritual significance as well. Not that academic questions don't have that, but uh, he was thinking about the laity. Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Scott. And even during his time in Strasbourg, he's called as an elder to the refugee church there, and he's regularly preaching to the small group of Italians. So he's preaching in Italian to this small group of Italian refugees who are there in Strasbourg. So he's very much actively involved in pastoral ministry, not as you know, a sort of full-time pastor who is only doing that, but there's no doubt about the fact that you know, he loved the church, he loved the people of God, and that was where he saw his ministry moving towards, not just the, the academic work that was done in the classroom, but doing that work in the classroom so that pastors would be well-trained and they could bring to the people of God the gospel. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking with Patrick O'Banion about his new translation of Hiralamo Zanke's book, The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church. One of the places where he found himself serving was Heidelberg. And he had, as you say in your excellent introduction, a number of happy years in Heidelberg until Louis or Ludwig VI came to power. Tell us about those years. Yes, you're exactly right. After, you know, Chiavenna wasn't a great experience either, and so he was offered a job teaching commonplaces, right, commonplace theology at Heidelberg University in 1567. And these were really good years. I mean, there was kind of a dream team of theologians and uh, Reformed folks hanging out in Heidelberg during these years. Ursinus was there, Olivianus, of course, was there as well. Emmanuel Tremelius Junius, Franciscus Junius, was actually Tremelius's research assistant at this point. And there were a number of other big names, even Ramus, Peter Ramus, came through briefly. He didn't last, he didn't stay, but uh, it's interesting that he was drawn there as well. Ursinus wouldn't let him stay. It's exactly right. Yeah, there was the big row about it, and Ramus decided that uh, he would find a home somewhere else. So yeah, you know, Zanke is there, he marries, he actually has a whole bunch of kids eventually, and uh, you know, sort of fills his house up in 1571. He serves as rector. This would basically be kind of like you know the president of the university or something like that. So he's well liked by his colleagues. And you know, this man who really had hardly published anything up to this point in his life. I mean, he's 50 years old now almost. In 1570, Frederick III, who's the Duke there, discovers anti-Trinitarians in Heidelberg, and he sort of freaks out a little bit, and he tells Zanke, you know, write a treatise in defense of the Trinity. And, you know, this is one of those situations where you kind of get more than you're bargaining for. Um, (laughs) Zanke ends up writing in, you know, really speedy fashion, given the slow pace that Zanke operates in the classroom. It's really slow. But he writes a massive treatise in two volumes and publishes it in 1572 called On the Three Elohim. And it's this remarkable defense of the Trinity, not just a kind of regurgitation of the way things have always been done, but it's a very positive treatment that engages with biblical texts as well as the church fathers, as well as sort of philosophical tradition and also contemporaries and medieval theologians as well. So he's really kind of doing everything there. And this really sort of sets the wheels in motion. So now he becomes, you know, a writing machine for the rest of his life, publishing just an enormous, really an astonishing amount 
of uh, material. There are many important callings in this life. Physicians, nurses, police officers, and firefighters, they all save lives until Jesus returns. Everyone helped by a doctor, a nurse, a firefighter, or a police officer, however, will die. And then what? There is another calling that is vitally and eternally important. The ministry of the gospel. At Westminster Seminary, California, we've been educating men for pastoral ministry since 1980. Scripture says, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's John six sixty six through 69 Jesus does have the words of eternal life, and he's commissioned his church and his ministers, his servants, to announce them to the world. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to pastoral ministry or to some other kind of service. We're grateful for your prayers and support as we seek to continue to fulfill our calling to help men and women fulfill their callings for Christ, his gospel, and his church. WSCAL.edu, 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. That episode of, you know, the anti-Trinitarian episode in Heidelberg is really fascinating. You know, it's interesting. People focus on one Spanish anti-Trinitarian who was put to death by the city council in Geneva, but they ignore the two who were put to death in Heidelberg in 1571. And I think it's because, you know, obviously Calvin is more famous, but if people were really concerned about religious liberty and oppression and all of that, it seems to me they would pay attention to Heidelberg. So this is really, I think, mostly about scoring points, right? We can dirty up Calvin by talking about Servetus. In fact, Frederick didn't really want to put the fellows to death. It was the pastors, as I understand it, who were really, if I can say, hot and sweaty to put these heretics to death. And I think because nobody wanted the word to get out that these reformed guys in the Palatinate were soft on anti-Trinitarianism. Oh, yeah. That would have been a nightmare. Explain why that is. Why would well, that have been a nightmare? At this point in the Palatinate, the reformed exist sort of on the margins of legality. Technically speaking, there are only two acceptable versions of Christianity allowed in the Holy Roman Empire, Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism. And that's not what Frederick III is doing in the Platinum. He's doing Reformed theology. And if anybody pushes too hard on that, it's going to go really bad for him. So, you know, you've got this sort of political context, but then you've got the other context, which is, you know, everybody is saying you can't trust the reformed guys. They're really just radicals, right? They're really just, you know, some of these wacky, crazy left wing theological folks. And if we start seeing anti-Trinitarians appearing amongst them, well, that's just proof positive. One of the things that's very interesting about this book that he publishes in 1572 is that it actually gets an imperial seal. I'm not sure if it's technically called an imprimatur or something like that, but it is acceptable to be published within the context of the Roman Catholic Holy Roman Empire and within Italy as well. Right. So this book is such a vigorous and strong defense that it is even acknowledged by the imperial watchdogs as something that, yeah, this is pretty good. This is a firm, solid defense 
of the Trinity. Yeah, this is the equivalent of uh, Mike Horton writing a defense of the Trinity and getting the approval of the Vatican or something. Yeah. It's unlikely, (laughs) it would seem, on the surface of it anyway. (laughs) So you can add that to your list of titles to translate. That's going to take a long time, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, people don't know. Doing these translation jobs, this is very slow and difficult. So we are in your debt, and we are talking to Patrick O'Banion about his new translation of Hiralamo Zanke, the spiritual marriage between Christ and his church. So let's talk a little bit about this book. I feel like we're running out of time and there's so much to talk about, but I think it's good for the listener to get a sense of who Zanke is and what kind of fellow he is and what his interests are so that uh, you know the listener might be uh, motivated to read this book. Can I say something about that just very briefly, Scott? Please. I'll try not to take up too much time. No, no. So, you know, the last few years have seen this sort of wonderful renaissance of publication of Reformed Scholastic Theology from the Classical Era in English, right? I mean, we're getting the Maastricht now, we've got Turretin, we've got the synopsis of pure theology, a Brockle is available, right? You know, it seems like there's more and more, you know, the stuff that uh, is part of your series, the classic Reformed Theology series, right? All of these things are coming out, and this is such a valuable contribution. But I always feel like as we get the theology, we also need to be getting the guys who are behind the theology, what their context is, who they are, you know, how they're operating, and, and when these things are being written and why they're being written. I feel like that's an also an important part of the story that we need to be bringing out. So I appreciate the opportunity to spend a little bit of time talking about Zanke's bio. On page 17, Zanke wrote in the translation, for just as Christ, no less than other men, is of the one Adam, with regard to the nature of his flesh, so we are of the one Christ, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, with regard to spiritual regeneration. What does that tell us about Zanke's view of spiritual union with Christ? So I think what he's trying to emphasize as Paul puts it, right, there's a first Adam and a second Adam. So he's doing this business where he's saying, you know, just as all human beings are in Adam, so too all human beings are in Christ, right? And so, you know, although he doesn't use the sort of covenant federal language so much here, what he's beginning to do, I think, is to develop some of that sort of thinking, which is really going to develop and flourish in the next century, century and a half or so. So what he's trying to point out here is the way in which, just as all human beings are in Adam, so too all human beings are in Christ. And he wants to emphasize that they are in Christ, not just in terms of you know, Christ's divinity, but in particular and especially, first of all, with regards to Christ's humanity. That's where the spiritual union for him is going to happen first. When you say all, obviously we're all in Adam, but the all relative to Christ is somewhat qualified, and he does Absolutely. qualify that in the title. And there's two aspects to that all. And one is the church. And, and every one of the faithful. And every one of the faithful, the fidelis. So, yeah, walk us through that. How does he think about the corporate aspect of this union with Christ and then the individual aspect of this union with Christ? Yeah, you know, it's quite interesting. At one point in the treatise, he says, just as Christ is two natures in one person. So we are one nature in many persons, right? So he wants to say Christ as our head, 
is head over the entire body of the church, but also over each one of the individual members of the church as well. It's interesting that he wants to strongly emphasize both that corporate element and also the individual element. And of course, all of this is done by way of the spirit. It is the spirit who is working faith within the hearts of each one of those individual members of the church, which joins them together to one another and to Christ. Actually, it's to Christ and then to one another. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The humanity of Christ is really important to the way he's thinking about our union with him. And that might surprise people. When we think about union with Christ, we're maybe not thinking about our union with his humanity. And as you were talking about that, you're making me think, which is good. I'm thinking, is some of this work the outgrowth of his years of dialogue with people like Marbach? and other Lutheran Lutheran critics in Strasbourg so that he's had all these years to work out a doctrine of Christ's humanity. So sketch for us the difference between the Lutheran view of Christ's humanity, which you did earlier, and now Zanke's view, a Reformed view of the humanity of Christ and our union with that humanity. Well, that's a tall order, but uh, let me see if I can try to explain some of this. So I think in some ways, the issue comes you know, all the way back to uh, what we call the Marburg Colloquy of 1529, which is the moment when Luther and Zwingli sat at the table with one another, you know, opportunity for the two sides to come together. And to Luther's astonishment, on most issues, 14 out of 15 issues, he found that he and Zwingli were in lockstep. But on the 15th issue, which was the Lord's Supper, consensus remained elusive. And you know, that initial division, which you know, Luther sort of continued to develop his theology of the Lord's Supper, and certainly after him, those who followed took it even further along that trajectory, would keep the Reformed and Lutherans apart. So the question here is, right, what happens to the bread and the wine? Right? What happens to the bread and the wine? And the way that the Lutherans have answered that is to say that Christ is really there. Right. His physical body is there in, with and under the elements of the bread. And if you press and you say, well, how is that possible? Right. How is that not just transubstantiation? Like Rome would say, what they're going to suggest is that Christ's human nature, his physical body, which includes his physical body, appropriates the divine attribute of immensity. Right. And so his body literally sort of suffuses all of creation but is in some special way there in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And you know this theological move, this Christological move, whereby the divine attributes are appropriated by the human nature, what's sometimes called the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of the properties. This is a direction that the Reformed theologians don't think is a good idea, and there are a variety of reasons why that's the case. But the Reformed want to say, that the divine nature of the eternal son is, yes, certainly fully united with his human nature, but it's not contained by the human nature. The human nature of Christ does not contain all that God is. And so it's really out of this debate, disagreement, this difference in the way that they understand the supper, which is really a disagreement about the way in which they think about the two natures of Christ, that a lot of this begins to develop. And I think you're exactly right, Scott, when you say that this is in some ways Zanke having reflected on his troubles with Marbach 
you know, for decades, by the time he publishes this, at the very end of his life in 1590, I think it's actually published technically in 1591, but he sends it off to the press in 1590, just before he dies. This really is a treatise about Christology. And I think even more than that, it is in some ways a treatise about Christology that is arguing against the Lutheran view of Christology. Remarkably, as you point out in your introduction, we're talking to Patrick O'Banion about his new translation of Hiralamo Zanke's The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church. You point out in your introduction that he dictated this book while he was completely blind. Am I, yeah, is that right? It's a little bit more complicated than that. Yes, I think this is true, but it's a bit more complicated. So I think, right, the publishing history of old books is often difficult to reconstruct. But I think that this material was originally written as part of a series of lectures that he gave when he was a New Testament professor and he was commenting on the book of Ephesians. So I believe that this is where this material originally came from. And then later on, at the very end of his life, he decided to extract part of that material and sort of spin it off as a book on the spiritual marriage. And it's not entirely clear to what extent he developed or altered that material, but it is clear that by 1590, he's entirely blind. And so everything that he's doing, he is doing through the help of an amanuensis, a secretary who's sort of working directly with him. And he remains quite active as a writer and as a correspondent as well. It's very difficult to proofread a text that you cannot see. so I, can, I can't imagine. I can't imagine, no. Uh, yeah. And in some ways, this is kind of a commentary, an extended, you use the word excursus, I think, relative to his commentary yes. on Ephesians. This is an excursus, an extended meditation on Ephesians 5.25. Yes. And so the whole relationship between Adam and Eve, Christ and the church, husband and wife, and he's meditating on all of these things. In some ways, you know, there was a push to, uh, some years ago, to make Calvin into the theologian of union with Christ. And there were a number mm -hmm. of volumes on this. And one author actually has sort of retracted her work and to some degree to said, well, mm. listen, we got a little carried away with this, um, which I appreciate that honesty. It's always seemed to me that if people were looking for the Reformed theologian of union, his name is Hiralamo Zanke. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm always a little bit hesitant to peg Zanke in that way. But, you know, he wrote in the, the 1570s and 1580s a quite large confession of the Christian faith. That's exactly what I was thinking about. When you read through that, he is constantly going back to union with Christ. I mean, that is sort of the pivot point for him on a lot of different doctrines. doesn't mean that union swallows everything up. I mean, he's making proper distinctions, I think, along the way. But for him, union with Christ is terribly important. And I think there are a number of reasons why that's the case. I mean, part of it is just it's a rich biblical metaphor, and it's in there in the text. And so he's sort of working with the text. But I think one of the other things that it allows him to do is because union with Christ is connected to spiritual marriage— and spiritual marriage, especially as Paul develops it in Ephesians 5, and as you see it in you know, the end of the book of Revelation, is looking back to Genesis 2, right? What you get is this whole sort of biblical theological panorama, which allows Zanke, on the one hand, to be kind of a systematic theologian, but a systematic theologian who is very attentive 
to the ways in which redemptive history is flowing. So he's on the one hand doing sort of, you know, hardcore biblical exegesis. On the other hand, he's doing what we would now think of as systematic theology. And if he had a third hand, it would be, you know, sort of trying to do redemptive historical kind of biblical theology stuff. I mean, it's not sort of your hardest boss or anything like that, but it's definitely giving a sense of the way in which the flow of the biblical narrative is playing out. I think it's rich, it's fascinating, and he has an acute methodological approach that he's trying to work out. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.